the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc Minus the Bear formed in Seattle in 2001. Their 2005 record, Menace El Oso, was a landmark indie rock record. They got even bigger as the decade progressed. It was a moment in time where indie rock bands gained substantial audiences. MGMT, Animal Collective, Vampire Weekend. Minus the Bear, like many of these bands, pulled from a variety of influences. In their case, math rock, prog rock, a little bit of emo and pop. But also buried in the bass lines was ska and reggae influences. Before moving to Seattle, bassist Corey Murchie was a huge ska fan and went to many shows in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Today, he tells us about his love for ska and how he snuck as much of it into Minus the Bear songs as he possibly could. How much did you listen to Minus the Bear back in the day? I listen to them now and again. Yeah. I think I mostly just knew of them peripherally through bands like Terramelos. And then I would always mix them up with uh, These Arms Are Snakes. They were a really big band. I think they kind of came right at that peak when indie rock sort of was its biggest. Yeah. Like that sort of mid to late 2000s. I think indie rock kind of had its biggest like uh, moment, if you will, in the mainstream. And they were one of those bands. Mm-hmm. Kind of mathy, kind of technical. Yeah kind of chill but you could tell that they were from you know aggressive roots and we found out ska roots and they're in the music they're in the music yeah Corey plays bass and he injects a little bit of ska a little bit of reggae into those bass lines so what we're saying is minus the bear is now a ska band we claim them we claim them <laughs> 
And if you're listening to this and you're a Minus the Bear fan, you are now a Ska fan. And if you're in Minus the Bear and you're not Corey, guess what? You're in a Ska band. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for for wanting to talk. I love Ska. It sounds like you guys do too. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, it's all right. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) I want to start with, um, you sent or you posted a photo of yourself. I think you're in high school and uh, you're, you're, you're sitting down, you got, uh, it looks like a beer maybe. <laughs> and uh, you got your jacket on, your cool jacket, boots, there's specials. There's two specials patches. One's got like a ghost town thing going on. One's more of just generic specials. Uh, there's a selector patch. On your other arm, I can see some checkers, but I can't really tell what it is. Let's discuss the photo. Yeah, the photo. So that was probably taken in, I'd say, around 1994 or five-ish, probably 94. Um, It was downtown Santa Fe at the rail yard, which was at the time just a dusty, like just a rail yard that uh, wasn't anything. Um, And yeah, that checkered patch that you're talking about was uh it was one of those classic checkerboard just and it just said ska nice and that was that was definitely the first ska patch that i ever bought and uh which i'm actually kind of bummed because it's the one patch that i don't have i've held on to everything and that for some reason is missing in my collection so i've got to hunt one down do you know where you found the ska patch in in 94 I do. I probably found it in 92 or 93 down on the third street promenade in, in Santa Monica um, because I used to live in Los Angeles. And uh, I think on a trip down to, to Nana's, which was where you could get Doc Martens at the time, it was either Nana's or you had to, you know, mail order Doc for Doc Martens. And so uh, yeah, I remember going down, picking up some Doc Martens and then going into probably a record shop and seeing it on the, on the, you know, wall or whatever, and being like, I gotta have that. Cause I was just starting to, like, I just, uh, I just, I mean, I, I don't know if you want to start here, but, uh, I had just seen meal ticket. The, uh, I think they were from the Valley and, uh, they blew my mind because it was like nothing I'd ever seen before or experienced. Um, and so that was kind of, was the spark. And yeah, I remember going in and being like, oh, meal ticket, there's ska. I like ska. I'm going to get that patch instead of like the morbid angel patch that everyone else was getting, you know, <laughs> cause that was not, not my thing. So if you would have told me that photo was taken in the early eighties, I would have been, I would have believed it. Like <laughs> it's got like a, it's black and white, but like you, you got the old look. That's my first. My first observation. My second one is you look like a troublemaker. Were you a troublemaker? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I had my moments of troublemaking. Um, I, my, my, uh, one of my best friends growing up, Nick Parnell took that photo of, of me. Uh, we were down on the train tracks and he was a photo- he is, he's a photographer and he took that, that picture of me. I, I still remember it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think uh, if you if you said that uh, it looked like the '80s, then I then that's a, a big compliment. I was doing something right <laughs> <laughs> because I definitely, you know, I loved that you know late '70s, early '80s, whole, the two tone scene. I mean, that was that was huge um, for me. 
So, so you got meal ticket kind of was the first, that was the intro, but um, eventually you discovered two-tone and that sort of became your thing. Yeah. Um, so I saw that meal ticket show and completely blew my mind with just like how much power the band possessed with all that brass, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was something that I had never actually seen. I'd always just seen guitars and, and drums and, and, you know, that was it. So with that addition to the, the, the brass, it was just like, Holy crap. This is just like, this is so powerful. And like, you know, everyone was dancing and like, it was like this weird amalgamation of moshing, but skanking. And it was like, yeah, it was super positive. Right. It was like, Mm -hmm. everyone was having a good time. And if someone fell over while they're skanking, someone picked them up. It was, it was true punk rock in that, in that sense. Um, so it just really, it really made an impression on me. Um, and then cut to probably, you know, a few months later, I had a, a family friend gift me this incredible gift of, of all of his old vinyl. And he was an old punk rocker, new wave kid in, in the late seventies, early eighties in Los Angeles. So he had this collection of like, you know, the specials, the beat fishbone, um, some compilate like K-Rock compilations, bunch of black flag, adolescence, like kind of the whole whole thing, you know. Um, and one of the records that he gave me was the specials Ghost Town 12 inch. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, kind of putting the two and two together that the specials were kind of part of this, whatever the ska thing was, you know. Um, and I remember putting that record on. And like, I didn't understand it at all. Right. Cause like ghost town, that, that 12 inch, like those three songs, they're not like your traditional, you know, two-tone ska that you think of, you know, rat race, you know, message to you, Rudy. It was like something different, but it made an impression and it was just like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> and that was, that was really kind of the, the catalyst that, that broke open the dam. Um, you know, and that, that beat record too. the, um, just can't, what is it? Just can't stop it. Or yeah, I think it was like those, those two, like they just like made the biggest impression on me. So that was kind of like, as far as actually listening to ska, those were, those were the two records that really spoke to me. So when did you move back to Santa Fe? Are you from Santa Fe originally or? Yeah. Kind of a bunch of hopping around between Seattle, Santa Fe, LA, but, um, yeah. So I was in the Valley for, for a while and that was where I, you know, was made aware of, of ska and then moved to Santa Fe and then, and from junior high basically to, uh, uh, till I moved back to Seattle, uh, once I graduated. Was there anything happening ska wise in Santa Fe during that period? There wasn't really, um, there was, there were a couple kids that knew about it, but you know, Santa Fe is still a pretty small town. Um, there were, there was like a ska band or two in Albuquerque, um, like giant steps. They were, they were like the big ska band from Albuquerque. Um, but it was like, it was like this cool, like nobody knew about it. And I was into it. My buddy Nick was into it. My buddy Scott, you know, there was like five of us that liked it. And it was like this special thing that we had, um, you know, there was a decent like punk rock and hardcore scene, which we were definitely involved with, but, but like, we were definitely the, 
the, you know, scooter boy, rude boy, <laughs> skinhead contingent, you know, like when I moved to, to, to Santa Fe, you know, I had shaved head flight boots, the whole thing. And my best friend, Scott, <laughs> he like followed me around for a while because he was like, okay, he's got some scar patches, but like, he's a skinhead. Is he a Nazi skinhead? <laughs> is he like a traditional skin? Like, what is this deal? You know, like, and like the first thing he said to me was like, he was like, oh, you know, I've got a Vespa. I don't know if you're into those. And I was like, whoa, you've got a Vespa? Like, don't like, I want one so bad. And from then on, like we were inseparable. So, so yeah, he thought I was a Nazi. I wasn't a Nazi, never was a Nazi. <laughs> I was the the Scott kid, you know. I'm glad we were able to set that straight right here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just want to say. <laughs> yeah, uh, my, my old band never played Santa Fe, but we did play Albuquerque every tour. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember the shows being good there. We always played a place called Time Out. Yep, yep. I remember Time Out very well, yeah. We used to go and sneak down to shows and, like, sneak in the back, do the, the, do the classic, like, help the band pull in their their gear you know and uh yeah it was it was a lot of fun we'd always go down there was a local band we played with once or twice and uh, i cannot for the life of me remember their name the only so i have such a weird detail that i remember but the only detail i remember about this band is that they had a song called porn star <laughs> I wonder if that was three ball combo. Oh, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That that sounds about right. Yeah, so a bunch <laughs> of them were from Santa Fe actually. So like when I started a ska band um called the Soul Scats because I was like totally into two tone and like tradi- by then like totally into the traditional scene. Um and they were like more of like the ska core, you know, yeah. aspect. So, yeah. Nice folks, though. So when did you start your band? <laughs> uh, I started that probably 95. Okay. Nine, yeah, probably 95. Um, I enlisted, uh, like, not many people like ska in Santa Fe, but a lot of people loved reggae, you know? Um, there were a lot of hippies <laughs> that really, really loved the the, the, the reggae. So I enlisted a a couple hippies to play guitar and, and trumpet. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was like, we tried to like, my, my whole vision was like, yeah, two-tone traditional ska. Like I didn't want to do the ska core thing. Uh, it was more about like, yeah, uh, early whalers and, and, and specials and, you know, that type of thing. So I assume you played bass in the band. I did. Yep. Yeah. Was that your first uh, time? Was that your first band playing bass? I think, it, I mean, first band that like, we really like played shows and, and, you know, yeah. I mean, that was like kind of the first real band for sure. How much did this band play? We did. I mean, rock, we played quite a bit for being a high school band. Uh, we played a bunch of Santa Fe you know what there was a uh growing up there was a diy like un, uh, like all ages club and warehouse place that we all you know basically lived at what was it called uh warehouse 21 okay warehouse 21 and uh so we played you know a bunch of shows there we played you know uh, 
we played downtown on the plaza a couple times. We, we opened up the first skate park in Santa Fe. And then we also played in Albuquerque a bunch. We got, um, we played some, sh- you know, a bunch of shows with, uh, I think I mentioned giant steps. They were an Albuquerque ska band there was doing a bunch of stuff. Um, went up to Colorado a couple times and, uh, yeah, we just pretty much anything, any excuse for us to play, we would do it. And it was tough too, because it was, you know, we had his bass guitar drums and then a three piece horn section and then a, a female vocalist and a male vocalist. And then my buddy, Nick, every once in a while would come in and toast. So it was like <laughs> the whole thing, man. Yeah. <laughs> Adam, what are your uh, New Mexico touring like memories? Where, where did you play? Uh, Launchpad in Albuquerque. That's the place I remember playing. Yep. And uh, they, I actually was just watching Better Call Saul, and they they mentioned the Launchpad in one of the episodes. Definitely, definitely. I remember Launchpad. They have um, they're one of those venues that like sometimes has a roof, but sometimes doesn't. <laughs> yeah. So like in the summertime if I couldn't sneak into the show, like through the back or whatever, I would climb the roof wow. and then like look down <laughs> and depending on what the scene was like jump in or, <laughs> or just watch from, from the roof. But there were a couple of times I would jump in. It was great. Just like, just like uh stage dive from the roof. No, no. Like there was like a second level up there that like, you could like jump down from the roof oh, okay. and like, yeah. yeah. yeah all of a sudden you were at the show. <laughs> nice. Did your band open for any bands of note? Um, not really. I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean of note, but I mean like, uh, you know, that, that Arizona band Congo shock, we'd, we'd open for them. Um, who was it? Like giant steps, but mostly like, you know, local regional bands, nothing, nothing too huge when you would play the uh, all ages space in um, Santa Fe, uh, what kind of, would there be much of a turnout? Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, like for a while, like there were a bunch of people that would show up. I mean, the shows were always great. Um, we kind of built up a following and, you know, it was a lot of friends or whatever, but like, yeah, people would come out. It was, it was fun. Warehouse 21 is, as, as a name for an all ages space is a terrible name. <laughs> oh yeah 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 <laughs> it was an amazing spot though i mean i i have to say like it really fostered a lot of of really cool things and like kept a lot of us out of a lot of trouble yeah and it was like like it was pretty amazing actually what did it look like inside um well when i was growing up it was just like a fucking tin shack in in the rail yard like in a dusty lot and then as soon as I moved, they like expanded and like built a brand new spot. But I mean, it was like, it was a shack in, in the, in a dirt lot in the rail yard, basically. And we just like made it our home. Was it graffitied up or? Yep. Yep. Totally. Nice. Did you ever write anything on the walls? Oh, all the time, man. Yeah. What'd you write? What was your? Come on, Joker. Like, <laughs> I don't know. All sorts of shit. <laughs> Hell Yeah. Sky rules. Sky know. rules. Fucking kick it. Have you kicked a hippie today? I don't know. Ah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, it definitely was like an art, you know, fostered a lot of artists and, and music and really taught me how to, you know, I, we booked shows 
Um, I remember book. Do you remember? I don't know if you guys remember Blind Spot. Yeah, they were from Petaluma. They were from Petaluma. I auditioned to play drums with it for them after I quit Flat Planet, and I did not. I did not make it. <laughs> Jerks. Now, see, in their defense, though, uh, their original drummer was like a total shredder, like a yeah. And then I think they had a really high bar. So I think after they auditioned me and and I wasn't good enough. They probably went through several more and then probably realized that they had to lower the bar. Like, I wish I would have gone with Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, I remember, you know, booking them and um, yeah, so cut my teeth on on promoting and, and kind of getting into that world. Okay, I want to move forward to uh, a 2007 interview you did with AV Club. Hmm. So I think what they did was they grabbed your iPod and shuffled through it, then asked you about questions, asked you questions about songs. Okay. Yep. The so first song is uh, Tommy McCook and the Aggravators. Yeah, man. Okay. A giant dub. Yep. Great song, by the way. Oh yeah. So you're talking in that interview. So this is 20, 2007 that you're, um, they, you, you own a 30 disc set Trojan record collection. <laughs> yeah. And that uh, on tour, you mostly listen to reggae and crust punk. That was your contribution <laughs> yeah. to van music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What were you playing in the van specifically at that time? Specifically, man. Um, I mean, honestly, I probably did play the crap out of those Trojan discs. Um, if I was at 30 then, I'm probably at about 130 now. <laughs> I've, I've definitely upped my collection. Um, uh, so a lot of that... Um, uh, what would it, oh yeah, I mean, I, I musically, I really am kind of all over the place. Um, so it would go from you know Tommy McCook to the Cardigans to uh, Nausea to uh, you know Tom Waits, um, you know. So it it kind of goes all over the place as far as my musical radar. What's your cross punk bands? Oh, Nausea. Yeah. I, I would say nausea is, was, was a big one at that point. Um, and then, uh, I mean, I love like, you know, old hardcore bands, it, a lot of hardcore bands came out of Santa Fe too, like logical nonsense, Grimple. Um, I mean, they're not quite crust, but neurosis. I was super into neurosis. Um, so dead guy, well, I guess that's hardcore, but, um, but yeah, that's kind of, kind of where it was at a fine line between all of those yeah exactly just depending depending on what record and how many drugs they were doing at the time <laughs> now was minus the bear like a, a full album listened to in the van sort of band or would you guys jump around yeah we would we would listen to full albums um we jumped around a little bit um you know and it, it kind of depending on where we were as far as our you know era like we listened to a lot of like booty rap, you know, cash money millionaires. Yeah. And then, you know, all the kind of poppy like Nelly and, you know, all the, the, uh, uh, Pharrell produced stuff. Um, so a lot of that stuff, uh, we got into, you know, a, a big, uh, prog rock, uh, moment there. So there was a lot of yes and, uh, King Crimson and stuff like that. Is there any one album that you guys can't listen to anymore? Like just it, like that's been so played out from touring and listening to it that 
like anytime it gets brought up, everybody's just like, Oh no. I mean, that's kind of tough to say. It's been a few years since we've been on tour. Oh sure. But I I feel like that burnout stays. (laughs) Right. Right. I'm not really thinking of anything. All right. In, in particular, I know what you're saying, but I I can't think of anything at the moment. (laughs) Yeah. Were they down with your Trojan, uh, Trojan records stuff? In, in various degrees. Yeah. Yeah. The, the reggae ska thing did not go over, uh, so hot with those guys. That was not like when I was driving, it was like, okay, Corey's going to drive. He's going to play some fucking reggae and ska. Um, (laughs) And so I would gleefully turn it up, you know, obviously. Of course. So as an adult, you've, you've really gravitated towards the older stuff, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You want to name like some particular favorites, be it like artists or songs, records. I mean, you know, Toots uh, was a big one and still is, Um, you know, that early Whalers stuff is incredible. Um, of course the Scottalites, um, you know, all the, all the classics, um, I did, you know, there is a lot of, you know, third wave stuff that I, that I still really love too. Like the, the Boston's, the Boston's were a huge band for me. Um, you know, op Ivy and, and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, the two tone stuff, the, the specials, the beat selector, love the selector. Um, yeah, I mean kind of all over the place with that stuff too. Um, and then, you know, the older I've gotten, I think the more I've gotten into dub, you know, pretty heavy, like Lee Perry and, uh, you know, a lot of the Horace Andy, well, Horace Andy reggae stuff, but then, um, uh, uh, what am I, uh, I'm blanking right now, but, but yeah. But, in, but on tour, um, would you dare put on a Boston's? Every once in a while, if I was feeling especially frisky, uh, they could they could deal with Op Ivy. I think for the most part, um, the Boston's might be might be treading a little water, <laughs> but yeah, that's all right. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, there was, you know, when minus the bear was going on, I did kind of slow down my intake of of a lot of the ska stuff and definitely kind of lost touch with with what was current for sure um and you know admittedly did listen to a lot of other stuff besides scott while i was in the band right but you're still gonna have all that stuff from your youth on your ipod absolutely absolutely yeah and so some sometimes on long drive it's gonna creep out yep yep so a lot of those like old comps like the the club ska uh cd like that was really big because it, it you know had a bunch of different players on it or whatever and that was always mind-blowing for me um there was like maybe the club 64 cd mm. i think there was that that mango record label that put out a bunch of like compilations in in the early mid 90s mm. um so yeah i'd put some of that stuff on for sure i think you mentioned i'm not sure if it was this article for a different or a different one but that uh, when you were living in Seattle, you would listen to uh, KEXP. There was a Saturday reggae show. Yeah, yeah, that was that's phenomenal. Um, What's his name? Kid Hops um, did a, a morning reggae show, and it was just fire, man. It was it was great. He's really really good. Was that was that more like seventies type reggae? 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like seventies, eighties. Um, mm-hmm. but like, I actually, it's funny that you mentioned that. Cause like actually going into the studio one day, there was a bass part that I was kind of struggling with as far as like, okay, what, what am I going to do here? Um, and I remember specifically he played, uh, Damian Marley's, um, what is it? Uh, welcome to, welcome to jam rock. That's what it was called. Um, and it was, but it was the bass, uh, uh, it was a bass riff from any Camus, uh, world is Africa. And that bass part came on and I was like, that's it. And so like, I got to the studio, like with that in mind and like came up with something that like, to me resembled that and like played off of that, that vibe or whatever, excuse me. Um, and it was a direct result of Kid Hops playing that song that morning and me happening to hear it. Interesting. Yeah. You told me in a message when we were setting up the interview that, um, you, uh, you wrote a lot of bass lines either directly influenced by or even attempting to be ska ba- reggae basslines for minus the bear. And um, after you said that, I like like re-listened to some of your stuff again with that in mind. And I was like, oh, I, I can hear it. Like I didn't didn't notice it before, but I could see it. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it just like with you know, growing up with that in my past and like just my extreme love of, I mean, you know, as a bass player, listening to reggae and ska is like a kid in a candy shop, right? Like it's, it's, that's the basis is, is, you know, a main focus and, and a main driver of, of Jamaican music. Um, and for me, I just really was able to latch onto that as far as like use it as inspiration um, and to be able to kind of come at things, you know, trying to come at it less from like a traditional rock standpoint and be like, okay, what if I tried to match this weird tappy, you know, affected guitar with a dub baseline or a reggae baseline or a ska baseline um so it's just kind of always in my head and that's because that's what i like to play yeah i mean jamaican music you know the bass and the guitar are not like matching per se the way that rock music is so it's definitely it has an element that is that is really makes the song unique like it does sort of sing a melody but it's low end so it's you feel it you sense it it's not necessarily hitting you over the head but it really is affecting the the song in a major way yep and my my thought was and and kind of approach to to playing bass was like i always wanted to like i always wanted you to feel it like kind of in your navel right like i wanted to hit you where where you could feel it and Mm -hmm. so I, you know, when I would go to the studio, I was, my thing was just like, I just want it to be low and deep. Um, so yeah. And so sometimes, you know, because of the frequencies, like sometimes that doesn't come across on every like rate, like system, like stereo system and stuff. But then some, if, if you got the right low end, then, 
then it can kind of rumble through. I'm going to throw a few songs at you. Um, and, uh, you can, you can kind of break it down a little bit or have any, you know, anything to say about the, uh, the song and your bass part and stuff. Mm. So, and they have like some, they have some connection to why I picked them and I'll explain. Ooh, I'm excited for this one. Yeah. Okay. First one, uh, my time popular song. Uh, mm-hmm. I chose this because a ska band called young Costello covered it and turned it into ska. Wait, they, they turned that song into a ska song. Yes. Really? Yes. Oh, dude. What was, what are they called? Young Costello. They're a smaller band from Texas. Wow. It has, you know, it, it, it feels intuitive. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that was why I was, I was thinking about, I wonder what, how, what your approach to the song was. Yeah. Um, I think um, that always kind of, um, I'm super excited to check that song out now, by the way. Um, I think probably in the moment I was probably more thinking like more of like a hip hop thing, but like the, the dub bit like totally makes sense. And that is awesome. Interesting. So that song was kind of, was that like a, that was one of your bigger songs, right? From that era. It was, it was kind of the first single off of, off of a record that we did with a with a new record label that kind of had a little bit of a push um so we definitely kind of pushed that song and it it's a weird you know it's kind of an out one of those weird outlier songs that it doesn't sound like anything on the rest of the the album or whatever um so which we kind of did from time to time for sure um before we move on to the next song yeah tell me a little bit about the video the video's got like like a white room you guys are in color shirts you guys are kind of sped up a little bit or no or not sped up uh anyways it's just it's very like striking visual yeah it was just something different i mean videos were always are always strange because it's someone coming in with an idea and they're like yeah we'll do this while the song is playing and it'll be a video (laughs) and you're like keep cool let's do it (laughs) um and you just kind of go with it so yeah i think it was it was fun using all those those colors and the dancers um i think it was nice because sometimes the videos maybe come across a little more serious or a little more stoic sometimes and so that one was a real it just felt light and fun Mm -hmm. you know so yeah it was that was a lot of fun so memphis and 53rd um, yeah, uh, a, a journalist named Jason McNeil for all music described the song as quasi ska rock, like a timid English beat. Nice. I like that. <laughs> I like that. I, as soon as you said that song, I was thinking, okay, two tone, like it's going to be, uh, that would, that reminds me of, of that a little bit just because of, um, and the, the beat, the English beat that actually Oh man, this is this is so nice to get some reflection from <laughs> from the outside world. <laughs> a lot of fun to play live, and like always had a lot of energy. And yeah, I mean, I can totally see like an English beat kind of you know uh, just the way they motor through some of those those riffs. Like that's totally Memphis. Yeah. Okay, so um, last one is Pachuco Sunrise. Yes. Yes. Okay, I'm gonna read. Uh, so. First, I want to talk about the story behind what I read, and then you can talk about the baseline. Okay. Some article I found, and uh, I think Dave was being interviewed. 
And uh, the interviewer said it had a Scott element and then quoted him as saying that his girlfriend said to him, oh, you guys wrote a Scott song. And he said to her, don't ever say that to me again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I, I don't know if his girlfriend said that. I certainly said that many times and was received with absolute disgust. Um, and I'm like, dudes, it's a ska song. Like we, like this is, this is like, you can skank to this and they would get so bummed about it. Like, and, and I'm like, you guys, ska is awesome. It's great. Like, what is, what, what do you, what are you so upset about? You know, like just accept it. It's, it is what it is. So I am pleased beyond, beyond anything to hear you bring this up. And uh, frankly, if you didn't, I was going to bring up the fact that Pachuca Sunrise, in my mind, is indeed a ska song or has the potential to be a fantastic ska song. And in fact, I'll go ahead and throw it out there. If someone wants to cover Pachuca Sunrise <laughs> as a full on ska reggae dub, I, like I've thought about this. I, like, I know what the, the breakdown should be. Like, if you want me to play, uh, uh, let's talk. Let's make that a bona fide ska song. So I'm throwing it out there. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, just tweet at, what's your, just tweet at, what's your handle? Uh, Corey Murchie. Okay. Just, just yeah, tweet at, at Corey, Corey Murchie. Murchie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's get the band together and make, let's make, let's make a minus the bear ska cover band or you know ska cover album. let's do it oh man we can do a whole minus the bear uh ska cover comp let's do it yeah let's do it i mean we've got three songs we've got an ep right there yeah um and then the, what was the song that you uh you took that uh, uh damian marley bass line and oh um that was uh uh um double vision quest boom four songs four songs boom <laughs> which really you know we can round it out with five songs but that is a healthy start well what would be the what would be the fifth song like what's another song that like leans into the ska reggae realm maybe with the bass line or anything around it i'm gonna have to think about that but okay i know i know that they're they're out there because you know there's like I said, there's there's a bunch of songs that I'm like, that's for me, that's a that's a reggae or that's a ska baseline. So oof, I'm excited. <laughs> Let's jump into the future. 2023, the Minus the Bear Scott album comes out. Yep. Okay. How does the other members react to this? Not not well. <laughs> and and in this scenario, they get no warning. It just releases one day, pitchfork covers it and says, Wow, look at this. Yeah. Who calls you first the angriest? <laughs> um, I think I would probably get maybe a lot of silence <laughs> as my punishment. Um, no, I, you know, I, I'm sure I'd get some phone calls, but I, I would imagine that they could understand that, that it is actually indeed a very cool thing. So we'll see. We'll see. I'll, let's do the follow-up interview after we do the record. Yeah. Um, and the tour, yeah. And the tour. And the tour. <laughs> oh, I mean, we got to promote it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> here's here's my optimistic. Um, I'm going to look into the future. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see with rose-colored glasses. You're going to get a call from Dave. He's going to say, you know what? You were right. Pachuco Sunrise is a ska song, and I like it. I'd, I'd be so sick. <laughs> I'd, I'd, 
I'd be really stoked to get a call from Dave. <laughs> so, <laughs> so okay, minus the bear. This is actually, I think, might have been in the same article. There was a lot of talk about how uh, so you guys, you guys historically have used uh, long, ridiculous song titles, mm-hmm. and uh, now this was like the next layer after that. The, the interviewer was talking to the band and about how much they hated being asked about the long song titles. And uh, Aaron Tate told the interviewer that if they were asked about the long song titles, they would walk out of the interview. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of reasons why I don't mention that guy anymore. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of one of those silly things. Like you do something and then you're mad at people talking about it, but like, it's clearly a thing that like, <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. So it's a, it's a point of, of conversation, right? Right. People are going to notice it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, we, we always kind of did it just because it was like, Oh, you know, song titles are dumb or, you know, you don't want to call a song. I love you. That's all about, I love you. Right. But, um, so let's make them absolutely ridiculous. And they, they always kind of came just from too many late nights and, you know, inside jokes and, um, but yeah, once it, once it became like the focus of the interview, it was like, all right, guys, like, let's talk about the music. And, you know, rightfully, like we wanted to talk about the music, but like we gave them this low hanging fruit to talk about. So let's just kind of, let's go, let's roll with it. Right. But yeah, I think there was, there was definitely kind of a, a, a point in the the band's career that we were like, all right, no more dumb some song titles. So <laughs> they were just, you know, which, you know, makes sense. Cause we were also just like kind of, done with it but um it's it's funny it's funny right like it's dumb it's <laughs> funny i mean song titles are kind of i mean whatever i mean yeah. even did so some some bands have like you know weird song titles that don't they're not necessarily as ridiculous as some of yours but like it's not the same thing as the course like i'm thinking of um edna's goldfish has that song veronica sawyer and mm. um that there's no the Veronica Sawyer the words Veronica Sawyer never are in the song whatsoever. It goes you know Friday night you know whatever. Yeah. So everyone called it that they didn't call it Veronica Sawyer because. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys get any of that with fans or with yourselves? A little bit. I mean, people were really keen on the song title, so they paid attention. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like. That was the thing. Like they really paid attention to that. Um, and then in fact, it was funny because once we did kind of mellow it out and they were a little bit more benign, people would be, of course the interviewer would be like, so I noticed uh, your song titles aren't as funny anymore. It was always a German. I, I don't know why. Um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's just not as funny. Is there a reason for that? So be like, ah, Cause we didn't want to talk about it in interviews, but here we are. So so you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. But uh, at the end of the day, people were paying attention, which is the nice thing. So, did y'all do handwritten set lists for shows? Yeah, for a long time we did. Um, I think towards towards the end we started doing. So then you have to abbreviate it, right? Oh yeah, there were a lot of abbreviations for sure. <laughs> yeah, in fact, to be honest, it's funny that you mentioned that because you know I know. Uh, the songs based on those those uh set lists you know it 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 wasn't pachuca sunrise it was pachuca it wasn't 
Memphis and 53rd, it was Memphis. And it, you know, there were other ones that obviously were more, you know, cut down. Um, so when I do hear some of the, <laughs> uh, like, thanks for the killer game of, uh, Crisco Twister. It was just Crisco. Right. <laughs> and so it was like, when someone brings up the full title, it was like, what, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> so it'd go both ways. Yeah. When you guys were, um, a young band, you were, you had an album called bands like it when you yell yar at them. Yeah. And this was for a while, this was only available, available at shows. Yeah. I think it was like an EP. I think it was before highly refined pirates. Um, and so, you know, highly refined pirates bands like it when you yell yar at them, that kind of went with that. It was, it was like, uh, the pirate theme. Only having it available at the show. Was that like out of convenience or was that like to make it special? What was the thought behind it? I think for that in particular, it was just like a pre EP before we did the full length. Um, and I think I don't know. I think it was just a special thing that we had on tour in order to sell on tour that it was just a, so it was like a demo basically merch yeah. item. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't think, cause I don't think those ever really like came out uh, retail. I think it was, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was just a thing that we had on, on tour. I think late, later on you re-released it officially. Yeah. 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 Well, and it, I think with that too, like for our Japanese release, I think that was included, you know, because the Japanese releases, a lot of times they would want like, you know, a couple extra songs or something. And so like you would, you would put a, a few extra songs on the Japanese release for the Japanese market. If I remember correctly, it had something to do with that too, or worked with that too. So, And there was a song on there called Big Fat smart bug aren't you <laughs> mm-hmm. that's a uh a delightful uh instrumental song of about uh one minute and 15 seconds or something and you so that's a reference i believe to starship troopers uh-huh. i believe that's a line in in starship troopers so there were definitely like nods to certain you know movies or media that we would pick up on and and kind of include and starship troopers for some reason got a couple couple nods there i mean that feels like a very ska punk band thing to do <laughs> right right that's yeah. what i'm saying you guys should have yeah. sampled the goonies there you go there you go see i was ready to embrace that that that's the that's the thing i'm like come on guys we're already doing half of the ska work <laughs> right okay so from Santa Fe, you moved to Seattle. I, I assume was this for college? Is that what you went to Seattle for? No, I moved to Seattle um, because I didn't know what I was going to do after graduating, um, and I ba- I knew that I wanted to play music. Um, that that was something that I really enjoyed, um, and I needed to. I knew that staying in Santa Fe wasn't the ticket for that. Um, I'd played the ska band. Um, I actually, the first recording I ever did was with my friend, Aaron Turner, who, who runs, uh, or used to run Hydrahead from, he's from Sumac and ISIS. Um, 
we had a project and I was like the first physical like recording that we ever did or I ever did. It was a project called the Holloman. Um, and then I played with a native American guy up in Taos. He had, he was a recording artist and I played with him for a little while. And so about two year and a half after I graduated, I was like, all right, I got to get out of town and go somewhere and give music a shot. So I picked Seattle because my, um, my parents grew up in Aberdeen. Um, so a little logging town, um, on the, on the West, uh, peninsula of, of Washington. Where Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain is from. That is correct. Yeah. My mom used to babysit him. Get out of here. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I picked Seattle because I didn't want to go back to LA. Like I, my dad is a musician and, and he tried kind of to, to make a music career in LA and that's pretty tough. Um, when you're raising two kids, um, so LA was out of the picture, New York scared the crap out of me at the, at that moment. Um, and so Seattle it was, um, and so I moved up to Seattle with 80 bucks in my pocket and, uh, gave myself two years to, like I set a goal of, you know, being in a band, recording, touring, doing the band thing. And if at the end of two years, it didn't work out, then I would figure it out. You know, I'd look into school or look into something. Um, and so about a year and a half into it, uh, was when I, I met Dave, uh, at the cha-cha, which is a local bar where everyone, uh, a lot of bands kind of hung out. And, uh, I knew that he was in botch because, um, like I said, my friend Aaron Turner put out his records and so like at the bar, I, I walked up to Dave and, and this is still when botch was, you know, in full swing still. And I remember I walked up to him and I said, Hey, my name's Corey Murchie. I'm from Santa Fe. I, I know Aaron Turner. Um, I just moved up here to play music. We should play some music together sometime. And he kind of laughed and, you know, we met, but, but hit it off. Um, and then finally we got into a room together with, uh, with the drummer and that was kind of how it all started. Now, Botch had played like at least a ska song, right? <laughs> uh, I do not think so. Okay. I think the only, <laughs> I think the only ska, ska lover of that band was, uh, Brian Cook, who also coincidentally is the bass player. So, but I, I, I did read an interview that Dave said that they had some ska in there so they might have you know i think now that i'm now it was something that he would uh try to downplay with me but mm. yeah i think there was like an early early iteration of botch that uh might have played some ska punk yeah all right oh man i want i want that demo yeah we need that right demo. <laughs> uh before minus the bear you played uh kill sadie and um a band called ona la ska on Alaska. On Alaska. Okay. On Alaska. <laughs> However not, you want to pronounce it. <laughs> funny enough, not a ska band. Oh, not a ska band. It's like, uh, <laughs> kind of like dream, uh, bar ballads, right? Yeah. Kind of bar ballads, real singer songwriter. This guy, Tom Harple, who's just a, just a wonderful songwriter. Um, had this, had this little band and, uh, yeah, I played a little, little like keyboard organ and 
a little bass. Well, no, Brian Cook actually played bass in that too. Seattle's very incestuous with the music scene. So a lot of players playing together. Um, but yeah, on Alaska, that was a great band. Kill Sadie. So you were in Kill Sadie just a real brief time, right? Yep. Just kind of the tail end of, of their, their, uh, career. Um, funny enough, like when I met Dave and told him we should play music together, he introduced me to Aaron, who was the drummer from Kill Sadie and from Minus the Bear, um, and said, Hey, you know, or once I started hanging out with Aaron and those guys, like they were looking for a bass player. And so I just ended up kind of trying out and, and getting the gig. And we just, we only, I only did one tour with them. Uh, and then we recorded a, a final EP and that was about it for my, my kill Sadie days. Before you joined, I don't know if like you were aware of the band before you joined or anything, but, uh, what's his name? Bruce Wallet. Is that is the right name, Adam? Yeah. BJ. 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 Yep. BJ was in the band. BJ was from Animal Chin. Right. Yeah. And then the stereo, not a ska band, but. but yep. Lots of ska people in that band. And then uh, Eric Hansen was also in, in uh, Kill Sadie. He was also in the stereo. Right. Yeah. We were kind of like ships in the night. Like I think BJ might've still been in Seattle when I was up there, but he had stopped playing with kill Sadie. And that's kind of when I came in. Um, and so I knew him from around, but, but yeah, we, we'd never really played together. When, when you were in kill Sadie, were they still doing the white short sleeve dress shirts? No, unfortunately Damn. I was really bummed that I missed out on that. Yeah. And I remember, it's funny that you mentioned that because I remember seeing like in heart attack and like MRR, like these kill Sadie ads and being like, Oh, Look at that. They're in like white shirts and skinny black ties. I'd probably be into that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then not at all what I expected or was thinking it might be. But yeah, they look like they could have been a ska band, not a ska yeah, band. Yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. Not a ska band. When you moved to Seattle, um, did you have in your mind a type of music you wanted to play, or were you just pretty much open to anything as long as it was going to be something you can do full time? I was super open. Um, I was ready to just kind of see what would happen. Um, and I had no like preconceived ideas of, of what, um, what kind of music that I'd be playing. Um, you know, it was kind of interesting going up to Seattle because the music scene was so different from what I had grown up with basically. And especially at that time. Um, so yeah, I was, I just kind of kept myself open which is kind of what I've done always, you know, as far as my playing goes. Now, minus the bear, um, you get signed by uh, Suicide Squeeze. Yeah. Okay. The the best record label in the world. Now, I read that uh, the owner, Dave Dickerson, has a tattoo of your name on his body. Oh, he does. He does. He's a <laughs> fantastic man. I really love him. And I have, I have a tattoo of the Suicide Squeeze logo. Um, um, and probably now that you mention it, my next tattoo probably should be a David Dickinson tattoo. Cause I fully love that guy and, and really credit him to being, you know, just instrumental in minus the bears trajectory and just the, his love and support and, um, you know, just always being in our corner. He's, he's a fantastic man. Well, what's the story? Why, why your name specifically? 
Uh, we love each other, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and when you love somebody, you get the tattoo of their name. That's right. That's how yeah. it works, Aaron. <laughs> yeah. Hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when did the tattoo happen? Um, it was a few years ago. Um, I mean, I, it's, it still makes me blush because I was so taken aback, you know, like I've only got two people out there with my name tattooed on them. And one of them is my sister. And one of them is, <laughs> is David Dickinson. And he is my brother, man. Like, yeah. Only two. The only two so far, Aaron. Most people have like three or four. Yeah. It's not too late, Aaron. <laughs> yeah. Aaron. The very first tattoo I ever get in my whole life is Corey, <laughs> <It's> Corey Murphy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, you'll be in a very elite club, man. A lot of people have skulls. A lot of people have sacred hearts. Yeah, only two people have Corey Murphy. Oh, what 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 other tattoos do you have? Oh, I got a bunch of dumb ones. Um, <laughs> What's the dumbest? <laughs> and do you have any ska tattoos? I do. I have. Um, I actually have a special beat tattoo um that i got with uh do you do you know josh staples yeah from yeah. velveteen that's and, right. uh, the new trust yep um so minus the bear and the velveteen and new trust probably played more shows together than any other band nice. like we are big big josh staples and sarah sanger fans um and uh yeah so where were we? i think we were in pomona playing the glass house and the new trust was with us and josh and i were like let's get tattoos and he was like yeah okay yeah totally let's get let's get something and uh yeah we settled on the special beat it's that like jet logo you know the mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah the the plane or whatever so that's my only one right now but there is definitely more in the in the future i think nice did you ever see did you see special beat live no, I didn't, man. In fact, I've seen the specials a couple times, but I never saw the beat or the special beat. And I, I can't believe that I've never seen the beat because there were some, I mean, they've, they're still on tour. They've been touring forever. And it's always been like, I've been on tour or something has come up that I just can't see them. So one of these days. When I saw the special beat play in the, like the mid nineties, early mid nineties, mm-hmm. This was in the Warfield in San Francisco. I mm. was um, stalked by a very drunk skinhead who would just slow motion headbutt me. <laughs> so. I'm sorry that you had that happen to you, but that sounds very classic, like yeah. skinhead ska show thing. It was very unusual. It wasn't painful because it was slow motion. It, it was like a weird <laughs> slow <mind> motion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Special beat were good though. <laughs> good, good. Minus the headbutting. Yeah, the, the headbutting memory kind of has overshadowed the the performance. Yeah. Well, and that's the classic thing too, is like, especially going to ska shows in the 80s and 90s, like there was that, like for me, there was that whole like kind of moment of fear, you know, because you didn't know who was going to show up. Like in Albuquerque, there was, you know, the, the two-tone and, and skinheads that like like ska and that were not racist, but the the Rio Rancho skins, which were the Nazis, would show up to all the ska shows. And so you'd be like, you'd be on your guard and have to like 
in this weird way, like defend your turf. Um, and I, it, I just think back, like going to shows, like it was a, it could be a traumatic event. It could be like the most beautiful, wonderful thing as, along with being like totally sketched out and scary, you know, but that was all part of it. Do you ever get into an altercation? Yes. Okay. Let's hear it. <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, the, it just happens, you know, and you didn't want to be in that, but you'd all of a sudden be staring down a bonehead that was making a ruckus and you'd run him out. Yeah. Nice. So, and that was just part of it, you know? Yeah. It's, it's weird. It's weird how like you accept certain things like that. Like, yep. It's just a part of it. <laughs> yep. Yep. But then you don't accept it at the same time. Like you're saying, like you, you know, you run them out. So, yeah. Yeah. You, you hold your ground and you, you say, no, not here. Not, not, not what you're doing. It's, you know, fuck off. Nazi punks yeah. fuck off. Literally. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's that, but you lived that. Like it wasn't just a acute saying, like right. it was actually, you dealt with shit on the dance floor. And that's, you know, for me, like, the ska and like the two-tone thing, like everyone always, you know, it's like, Oh, ska, it's like this like circus, like hokey thing. Like it's so goofy, man, for me, like it was like, it was political. It was, you know, standing up for, for your, you know, standing up for yourself, standing up for your brothers and sisters and like, you know, call that cheesy, but like that shit was real. Like, you actually, it was like uh, putting in action your, you know, your, what you believed in Yeah. when, when, sh- when shit like that would, would pop up and it would pop up. Um, and so for me, like, you know, and, and the message of, of, you know, ska and two-tone and, and even a lot of the third, third wave stuff was anti-racist and anti-fascist and, you know, it was, it, it, it wasn't just like, pick it up. Mm-hmm. It was pick it up and do something and make a stand. So anyway, got off on a tangent there, but mm, good tangent. It, me- it means it meant something, you know, and it, it was, it was political and it had a message and I, and I appreciated that, you know, it, it talked about, uh, you know, racial prejudice and, and disunity and, talked about creating unity and saying fuck that racial prejudice you know and and it 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 actually meant something um so that's the way i look at it yeah and i i mean from my experience too going to the 90s ska shows especially in the early to mid 90s um that message was was fairly present amongst the bands that were even ska punk and Mm -hmm. I also felt like a lot of the bands I sort of in retrospect get labeled goofy. Like I always felt like it was more chaotic. It was more mm. like skank and pickle, you know, that my, my sort of introductory band, like I didn't think goofy as much as like, that was like crazy. Like, yeah, because, Oh, totally. Because that band and, and so many of the other bands, they just came from the fishbone school of live music and, and yeah. how you approached it. And that was just about, like anarchy on stage and that's the thing that's the thing that i as a kid i was like that's why i loved it i wasn't like that it was such a funny show 
<laughs> for sure. But it did it did carry a lightness and a and a, a sense of joy. Yeah. With with all of that kind of serious, you know, political and and you know social stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I was definitely intimidated by like heavier type shows, and I I wasn't I didn't want to go to like metal shows or hardcore punk shows. I mean that that felt like didn't feel safe to me the way Scott punk shows did for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, skank and pickle was a huge one. I mean, when they, when I, you know, got turned on to them, it, it was like very early on, like they were one of the first, um, you know, along with meal ticket, like non two tone or, you know, old bands like skank and pickle was definitely a touch point for me. Um, and they hit all the, they hit all the right nodes. God bless Mike Park. God bless Mike Park. <laughs> so minus the bear, um, Menos El Oso is that's sort of like your album that really kind of gets how you're most known for. Really, kind of you, you got to a point where you were really getting some attention. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think it. Um, yeah, I think trajectory wise, like that was definitely a a turning point for sure. Yeah, I mean, half the songs I mentioned earlier from that record. Yeah, totally. I read, uh, I read that that you had dedicated the album to your mom, who I, I, I guess had recently passed away when you guys made that record. If, I don't know if you, if you want to talk about that, but I'm just curious about that. Yeah, um, yeah, she um, passed away from uh, uh, after a fight of breast cancer, um, and so. It was probably maybe like six, seven months before that record. I can't, it, it, I, to be honest, I get a little foggy with time uh, regarding all that. Um, but she, she passed away. And then maybe three, three months later, we did a tour in, in, uh, in Spain that really kind of galvanized one, the, the title and kind of the whole theme of that record. Um, so it's a, it was a tough one, um, because, like that, yeah. you know, I, uh, say goodbye to my mom at, you know, I was 24, 25. And then three months later I was on tour and, you know, in hindsight, probably, uh, I probably should have taken a break, <laughs> um, and dealt with some things, but I didn't because I, you know, I believed in the band so much and it was, it was everything that I had. Um, and you know, I, the cover photo of that is on a beach in Spain and I had walked down to the beach because I was dealing with grief, um, quite a bit. And, uh, I remember taking that shot and kind of feeling like as far away from the band and from everything, from anything in my life as I was like that, that picture kind of said it all there. I was far away looking in, um, and, uh, yeah, dealt with some shit. <laughs> so yeah, we, we dedicated to my mom, uh, which I was happy that the guys were into doing that. I had found, uh, you know, as you will, when you're, uh, going through things and, and kind of taking care of all that stuff, I'd found a, a note that she had scribbled and, and, talked about how her favorite band was minus the bear and uh oh. um yeah it kind of just it hit 
hit me in a way that, um, um, she was so proud and so happy for me that, that I was doing what, that I want, what I wanted to do and what I set out to do. And she was, you know, such a huge support and, and my father is too. Uh, I don't want to, I, he gets, he deserves a lot of credit too. Um, but yeah, so it, it, uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of a story. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. And I think, you know, seeing that and kind of understanding the support that she gave me, it was, it galvanized me to carry on and just to kind of go full steam ahead, uh, with the band, regardless of what my mental state was. Um, and like I said, I maybe should have taken a break, but I didn't because there, that wasn't an option as far as I was concerned. So, yeah, I imagine when you're 24, um, and your band is your life and you're, you're, you're still thinking about this is, you know, we're, we're, we're getting somewhere and this could go even further. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like you can stop. Yeah. Like, nope. yeah. Yeah. You just kind of keep going yeah. for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah. So the band breaks up in like 2018, right? Yeah. And so did you move back to Santa Fe right, right when the band broke up? Pretty much. Um, my wife and I always talked about um, moving to Santa Fe um, at some point or New Mexico at some point. Um, didn't really know when that would happen. But as soon as it became clear that the band was, you know, kind of on its way out, um, we started making plans to to make our exit. And it was the best move we've ever done. So you work now doing uh, like watering crops and, and doing like farm stuff, right? Yeah, I work at a, a living history museum here in Santa Fe, and it's a Spanish colonial um, site. I mean, it goes the, the site goes back hundreds, if not thousands, a thousand years um, of inhabiting inhabitants. Um, and I, in a weird way, got fell in love with with moving water and and um, irrigation and here in New Mexico, there's a, a kind of an old system of irrigating land through um, what we call acequias, which is, um, uh, uh, I don't want to get too nerdy, but um, get nerdy. it's, it's an old traditional, um, the Spaniards brought it over from the Iberian Peninsula and they learned it from the Moors when uh, the caliphate uh, ruled Spain, but it's a, it's a form of irrigation through, man-made canals um in order to bring water to arid areas and during the colonial times uh the spanish brought the technology over which also worked with the native technology which had been in place for thousands of years as well um because they had to irrigate their fields as well so it's this whole process of moving water from one place to another where you need it um i fell in love with it in a weird random set of events and found myself at this living history museum. Um, and I get to move water through a, an acequia that dates back to 1719 at least. Um, and I grow hops and, uh, kind of wear a few different hats around here, but yeah, couldn't be more different than my, my previous life. And I couldn't be happier. So you like, uh, 
you kind of have a, a schedule now that's a I want to say a little bit more routine oriented, a little bit more meditative than you your old schedule, which was probably a whole lot of upheaval. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely been a learning curve, you know, because I did spend so many years on the road and kind of, you know, had a rhythm in the irregularities of band life, if you will, you know, but it was, there was still some sort of constant, like every fall, we knew we were going to be on tour every spring. We knew we were going to be on tour. Um, but it was, like you said, it was more irregular than, than what I live now. Um, yeah. so yeah, having kind of a rhythm of, of life is, is definitely nice. Um, it's def- definitely been a, an adjustment and, uh, some learning curves, but I've definitely been been happy with it you also uh, you also paint now yeah i um i started painting kind of um a few years before the band you know officially called it quits just as a i needed a, i needed a release i needed i needed to be able to kind of express myself on my own terms and not by committee um so i started painting and it was it was just a big yeah, just a big release and then um you know when when I moved to, to when I when we moved to New Mexico, I really had no idea what I was going to do. So once the pandemic hit, uh, really had no idea what was going on. So I just threw myself into painting, and um, <laughs> that, along with, funny enough, the Mighty Mighty Boston's and Operation Ivy saved my life through the pandemic um, because I like. I'm sure you guys have similar experiences of, of the whole, when, when lockdown came, it was dark and dire times, like just a lot of uncertainty. The only thing that got me through those days was waking up and listening to the mighty, mighty Boston's or operation Ivy. And it was like the positivity and pissed offness that I needed. And (laughs) it was like full circle. Like I kid you not. Like it was like, thank God for, for those bands i mean among among others but those two like uh, really kicked my ass so yeah any day i'm having a bad day i can put on the operation ivy album instantly instantly fixes my bad mood (laughs) dude it's so good it's so good and it still holds up so so much so yeah huge and i mean and not to to go off on a tangent but i do have to thank mighty mighty boston's for teaching me how to interact with fans I remember going to uh, a Mighty Mighty Boston's signing when Don't Know How to Party came out. And this is still in LA. I think uh, went some to some record shop in, in the Valley and they did a meet and greet. And, you know, we were all kids and just so excited to meet them. And like, they were so gracious and so nice and like signed our promo, you know, copies of whatever it was. And like, Every time Minus the Bear had a had a meet and greet or you know had fan interaction, like I kid you not, I thought back to the Mighty Mighty Boston's and how gracious they were and what a like what a uh, impact it had on me and what it meant for a band to treat their fans well. And I I really carried that with me throughout the Minus the Bear experience and like 
if if there's one thing that I miss about minus the bear, it's that fan interaction. Like it it was truly just so amazing and such a blessing to have like an incredible group of people that followed us for years. And like, you know, we'd have people come up to us and be like, Oh, this is our 30th show. And you're like, Jesus, dude, like is it 30th? Really? <laughs> you're like, yeah, man, I've got all the ticket stubs and like, I love it. And, and it, it, it meant so much, you know, like and that really, for me, really kept me going um, with that band because of our fan base. And uh, yeah. So shout out to, Boston's and the crew for teaching me how to do it right. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week so you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in-defensive ska memes floating around the interwebs, was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On that note, we leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.